2: Wars That Shaped the World uses dynamic, immersive audio to depict scenes of warfare. Listener discretion is advised. What's in a name? Any army worth its salt is conscious of history, especially its own and an army's commanders the more so. Take Instant Thunder, the codename chosen for the air phase of Operation Desert Storm, the plan to boot the Iraqis not only out of Kuwait, but to annihilate Saddam Hussein's Republican guard, remove them once and for all as a threat to peace in the Middle East. Instant Thunder was carefully chosen. It was to be everything Rolling Thunder had not been. Rolling Thunder, as those who know their history will be well aware, was the code name given to the air operation in Vietnam. In contrast to the prolonged, often wasteful air campaign in Southeast Asia, one that helped earn the United States a dark reputation for unnecessary destruction of lives and land, Instant Thunder was to be short sharp, and deliver one hell of a shock. And the history didn't stop there. The first action of Desert Storm was to come moments before instant thunder delivered its sound and fury. First would come Task Force Normandy. Normandy, a name that resonates through American and British military history. Task Force Normandy would deliver the first blow to launch the liberation of Kuwait, invaded by Saddam's forces five months
1: earlier.
3: We came up all abreast, watched the clock tick to zero, and I gave the code word, get some. At that point, Everybody fired their hellfires. I've got bright flashes to my left and right. People running around on the site. And underneath, I can see the explosions. Out of the 150 people we were briefed were at the site. I would imagine not more than 10 or 20 lived through that.
2: The waiting was over. It was time for instant thunder. Wars that shaped the world.
4: Uh, I
0: have a will
3: On the
4: evening of January 16, my family were sitting in front of the television to hear how Saddam would react to the final appeals for him to withdraw from Kuwait. We heard him speak the phrase, that was later to become famous, about Um Umm al-Ma'arik, the mother of all battles. I remember how mocking he was, especially when he claimed any Iraqi shepherd could shoot the American fighter jets out of the sky. We were all very afraid. My mother gathered us children under a stairway to protect us from being killed by shards of falling glass. I think my mother was convinced we would all either live or die together.
5: There's a strong desire not to screw up, a strong desire to do your best and not let the side down, not to embarrass yourself in any way. Because of that sense of personal responsibility, I think fear takes a back seat. We lost a number of aircraft in that first week and that didn't frighten people it it hardened your resolve made you more grimly determined i never remember being frightened and i remember being exhilarated i remember being nervous beforehand feeling that you think of the ghosts on your shoulder you can't be a member of a squadron like 617 the dam buster squadron and not feel there's a hell of a reputation to live up to. January 16,
2: 1991, was a day for clock watching. Clock watching if you were a pilot or navigator in 617 Squadron, or any other of the hundreds of Air Force units from the UK, the US, and rest of the coalition gathered in response to Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait.
0: At 6 p.m. Washington time, Iraqi troops cross the
3: border into Kuwait. Border full control of the military situation in Kuwait, the nation they invaded, in a dispute over borders and oil production. The, the U.N. Security Council has been working
0: all night...
2: 900- clock-watching if you were in occupied Kuwait. And clock-watching most fearfully of all, if you were in Iraq. Midnight on the 16th was the deadline set by the United Nations for Iraqi forces to begin withdrawing from Kuwait, invaded five months earlier by Saddam's feared Republican guard and occupied brutally ever since. That Saddam would not budge seemed certain, certainly to those in charge of the US military in the Pentagon. Hours before the deadline, the order had already been given to seven giant B-52 bombers who lumbered into the sky from their base in Louisiana. So began a 14,000 mile round trip that took 35 hours. It was the longest raid in the history of air warfare. As midnight came and went with the Iraqi forces remaining dug into Kuwaiti soil, the final countdown began. General Sir Peter de la Billière, the British commander, scribbled a note to his wife.
4: We are about to see history made on a grand scale. Let us hope it is not a cataclysmic scale.
2: De la Billière joined the overall commander, General Norman Schwarzkopf, in the war room. A bunker two floors below street level in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Television screens showed incoming information. Another, CNN, broadcasting from Baghdad.
4: I remember these American aircraft taken off in Riyadh and roaring over the headquarters. An immense sense of power, unending power, as these heavy, powerful aircraft roared overhead. It was both impressive and awesome and exciting.
3: and our long-standing, vital interests in the Gulf.
2: Operation Desert Storm was underway. The first part named Instant Thunder, an air attack that was aimed not only to reduce the Iraqi tanks and defenses in Kuwait to smoldering ruin, but also to obliterate targets across Iraq, from Baghdad to Basra. Nowhere the Americans were keen to demonstrate was out of reach of their air armada of bombers, fighters and missiles. The impact was devastating. General Wafik al-Samari head of Iraqi intelligence, was in Baghdad on the opening night of the air attack. Strike one of Desert Storm.
5: When the air raid started, I looked at the sky and I tell you, it was indeed a frightful storm. The air was full of all types of projectiles and shells, and the counter-air defences.
2: It was a frightening night to everybody. The air attacks saw 90,000 tons of bombs dropped on Iraq. This was less than the amount dropped on average in two months in Vietnam or the Second World War, but the accuracy was significantly greater. A couple of smart bombs delivered by a fighter bomber in 1991 would have required around 100 B-17 bombers to achieve the same result in previous conflicts. Instant thunder was drawn up by Colonel John Warden III and Lieutenant General Charles Horner from their base at Shaw in South Carolina. The name itself was a reminder of the US military's desire to rid itself of the specter of Vietnam. Rolling Thunder was the name given to the long-term bombing campaign in Vietnam. In contrast, the air offensive against Iraq would be short and brutal and accurate. It was planned to the nth degree. Each day, An air tracking order was produced outlining the schedule to the minute. The targets, refueling times high above the desert. Each day's air tracking plan ran to over 100 pages.
3: Target Command Bunker Basra, outcome hit and destroyed. Target Tank Units West of Kuwaiti City, Box 17, outcome hit and destroyed. Target Jelaba Air Base, outcome hit and destroyed. Target Communication Center Baghdad, outcome hit and destroyed. Intelligence complex Amira. Outcome hit and destroyed.
5: Target Republican Guard units North Kuwait Box 27. Outcome hit and destroyed.
2: The selection of targets, with army input, was done in what became known as the Black Hole in Riyadh under the abrasive command of Brigadier General Buster Glosson. Buster was a given name, not a nickname, and an appropriate one for this hard-working, hard-swearing Vietnam veteran. Glosson and his planners pored over maps, intelligence reports and images to select their target list. There were disagreements between the Air Force and the Army over targets. The Army wanted the focus on Iraqi defences in Kuwait and the Republican Guard units further back, waiting to counterattack any coalition breakthrough. The Air Force was interested in more distant attacks on airfields and military targets deeper into Iraq. At one stage, Schwarzkopf and Glossen, neither a man used to taking a step back, had a blazing row about the use of B-52 bombers. Glossen's technique revolved around kill boxes. 33 boxes made up Q8, each side 30 miles long. Within those boxes, air planners were then able to give precise areas of operations to each unit. The entire air operation was micromanaged, from the time of takeoff, to the attack, to the return to base and resupply. Glossen was to declare later that the air war had the Gulf War won from day one. In that it devastated the Iraqi army, it was an overwhelming success. And it was not just a material one. The relentlessness of the bombing and its sheer force caused thousands of Iraqi conscripts to desert their posts in Kuwait. And when the land war did begin, the willingness of large parts of the Iraqi army out with the Republican Guard to mount any form of prolonged resistance was already minimal. No bombing campaign has ever been perfect and civilians in Iraq suffered. On February 13th, Two laser-guided bombs struck a bunker in the Ameria, a western suburb of Baghdad. It remains to this day a painfully contested event. The US insists it was a valid military target. It was a command center, manned by Iraqi intelligence, military men. There were civilians sheltering there too, hundreds of them. Civilian casualties happened. This was a legitimate military
3: target. It was hit precisely. It was destroyed and put out of business. And there was very, very little collateral damage.
2: Merrill McPeak was the US Air Force Chief of Staff during the Gulf War and another Vietnam veteran. No more than 250 civilians were killed, insists the US military. This was a legitimate target. We had every right to attack it. Not so, say the Iraqis. This was public shelter number 25 packed with men, women, and children. At half past seven that morning, Fikra Sheka was told of the explosion. She ran with her son to the nearby shelter.
4: was sold to Ila
1: when I reached the shelter, I heard the screams of the people who want to get out. By ten a.m. the voice had stopped. No one was screaming. Let me I yes, we'll
2: Fikrasheka lost her parents, sister, and two nephews. Only the bodies of her father and sister were ever recovered. Back on January 16th, the first shots in the air war were actually fired by the US Army. Shortly before H-hour, nine Apache helicopters, Task Force Normandy, attacked two early warning radar sites in western Iraq.
1: Life keeps on me by, every time I look up in the sky, another body guy, another mama cry
2: like- Their attack happened minutes before H-hour as they launched Hellfire missiles. And followed up with Hydra rockets and cannon fire from their 30mm guns. The Iraqis replied with handheld ground to air missiles, but the US force returned unscathed. The 3am assault came in three waves. Ten stealth fighters left their base at Kamis Mushait, loaded with 2,000 pound laser guided bombs, and headed deep into enemy territory as far as Baghdad itself.
1: <laughs>
2: the Iraqi capital was believed to be so well defended, only stealth bombers were given the task of attacking it. The first sign to the outside world that the offensive operation had begun came from Baghdad. At 3am, CNN's live transmission from the capital went off air. The communication centre through which CNN's pictures were transmitted had been destroyed. As well as the long-distance B-52 mission from Louisiana, which claimed an 89% success rate, raids were also launched from bases in Diego Garcia and the Indian Ocean, as the world began to witness a new, devastating form of warfare, and the reach of a modern military superpower. The U.S. Navy vessels were the launch pads for Tomahawk missiles. I think going downtown Baghdad. Soon to become a media feature of the conflict. On day one of Desert Storm alone, 122 were fired, each one built at a cost of over a million dollars. The missiles flew so low, Western news crews in Baghdad were able to describe them flying past. In the entire operation, the US lost just a single aircraft in combat. Others crashed or were shot down by anti-aircraft missiles. It came on the first night, an F-18 Hornet flown by Lieutenant Commander Michael Scott Spiker. For some years after the war, rumors persisted that Spiker had ejected as his jet crashed early that morning. It was not until 2009 that his body was found with the help of Bedouins and returned home.
3: Once everybody was disconnected from my comm system, and it was just me inside the cockpit, when I was in my quiet zone, I was, I'll just use the term bluntly, I was scared shitless. Because you don't know. You don't know if there's gonna be another guy or gal on the other side who was prepared harder than I did. You don't know if there's the lucky BB, the lucky bullet I've seen, and I have good friends who died in peacetime. Well, here we are going into combat, and and that can happen to you too. So, yeah, scared was a part of my ritual.
2: Cesar Rodriguez from El Paso, Texas, was an F-15 pilot who was to be credited with two kills during the Gulf War. Like many pilots across the coalition, he was to find the demands of the air campaign grueling. He flew two missions a day, in between sleeping next to his plane to save time, barely eating. Some of the British aircrew were quartered in four-star hotels. Pilots would relax around the pool in between missions and travel to base in civilian clothes. Some found it lent an air of unreality to being at war. This soon became fused with fatigue. Some British pilots were flying three missions a day. The American pilots were similarly heavily worked. They were issued go pills, dexedrine, to keep them awake followed, when they returned to base, by no-go pills, sedatives, to help them sleep in between missions.
4: It was just grinding, day in, day out.
2: But it was grinding the Iraqi forces into the desert dust. There was no let-up. Waves of fighter bombers, including British tornadoes, followed day after day. The Tornado had been labelled a Greenpeace aircraft within sections of the RAF. Such were the complications of releasing its bombs. 126 switches had to be in the correct position before the bomb would be dropped. It was designed to prevent accidents. Others branded it a peacetime fighter. But plane and pilots did their job, kept in the air by ground crew working round the clock. The tornado was flown as per Cold War training, hair-raisingly low to slip beneath enemy radar. But before dropping its bombs, it had to be flown straight and manually for 20 seconds, so exposing the crew to anti-aircraft fire just when that was at its peak and the aircraft was most vulnerable. At the start of the war, the RAF tornadoes attacked in flights of eight aircraft. It was best to be in the first four to attack because by planes seven and eight, the Iraqi anti-aircraft crews knew what to expect. The tornadoes would be greeted by what literally resembled a wall of lead lighting up the night sky. And they had to fly straight through it. According to one squadron leader, crews were frightened, fartless, by the barrage, known as AAA for anti-aircraft artillery, coming up at them. Each mission became four and a half hours of calm, with a middle section of a two and a half minute cocktail of terror, adrenaline, and exhilaration.
3: This is Zulamite really compression target. We've got anti-aircraft fire. That, that's Zulamite. Really my...
1: I approached the target. I remember quite vividly that the AAA was being outfired. fired. I disconnected the autopilot and flew low across the airfield into what felt like a wall of lead. We flew right into it, and your senses tell you that everything is going upwards. So the visual stimuli is that you're going downwards. Then we went from all the visual stimuli in the world to absolutely nothing. All I could see was the AAA in my mirrors.
3: I remember being exhilarated watching AAA, my first experience of being fired at. A series of different coloured lights arching up into the sky. They sort of bend towards you. They're actually quite pretty.
1: It had lasted a matter of seconds, but it felt like hours. There was a palpable feeling of relief as we screamed away into the pitch black as fast as we could, leaving it all behind us. (laughs)
2: Close to 700 aircraft took part in the opening night, and there remains a school of thought, especially across the Air Force, that the war was effectively settled that first night. Comparisons were drawn to the Arab-Israeli War of 1967, the Six-Day War. Deep below the streets of Riyadh, in the war room, the mood was buoyant. General de la Billière described a sense of euphoria, even a spreading belief that this was going to be easy. It was, Delabillier added, soon to be recognized as over-optimism. The Iraqi response was muted. There was minimal aerial opposition. In the entire war, only 34 Iraqi aircraft were shot down, an illustration not of their aerial abilities, but of a refusal to engage. A further 100 were destroyed on the ground, and the same again fled to Iran, but the rest, the majority, remained in their bunkers. During the course of the month-long air offensive, the coalition lost 33 planes to Iraqi air defense, that from well over 100,000 sorties flown. Six British tornadoes were lost in the early days of the war. This was put down to the task given to the RAF of smashing up the Iraqi air force's runways. It meant highly dangerous, low-level flying to drop a specially designed runway-busting thousand-pound bomb. After five days, the tornadoes were switched to higher altitude attacks. There remains a debate over whether this was because the job was done, or rather that the bomb itself was not proving effective and when combined with the losses meant a change of tactics was necessary to save lives and planes. Peter Delabilliere was later to describe the RAF High Command's insistence on low-level flying in these circumstances as a disgrace. Whatever the reason, The change came too late for the airmen killed or captured. John Peters and his navigator, John Nickel, were shot down while flying at low level and taken prisoner. Both men were tortured and appeared on Iraqi television. Peters in particular showed obvious signs of having been beaten.
5: Having worked their way around the body, they made me stand up and they threw my face against against the wall and then one just my leg and for all the hits I damaged my leg quite well it it felt quite badly I was limping and the guy kicked my leg I just got this searing pain that went right down to my foot right up the side of my body from my knee and I I yelped and and that was my mistake the fact I yelped up to then you're you're grunting but but I let out a yelp it's just a different sound and they recognised it I was on the floor. They they just yanked me up and just karate chopped. It felt like their heel of, of a boot just into my knee. And I collapsed again and they pulled me up. Smack, pulled me up. Smack, pulled me up. Smack, pulled me up. Smack, and eventually, and somewhere in there, while they were doing that, they said, are you pilot or navigator? Are you pilot or... And I And I eventually, I... Pilot, and it just came out. I couldn't couldn't stop it. And that's when you realise you've
2: broken to the violence. Despite the human cost on both sides, strategically the air offensive was a devastating success and cleared the way for the ground assault that followed. It was certainly appreciated by the men and women of the Coalition ground forces. Sergeant Sean Russling was a medic with the Parachute Regiment. I think it's overwhelming superior firepower, overwhelming force. I think the war, really, was the air campaign. The beating that Iraq took over the six-week air war was phenomenal. On an evening, you could see the sky just lit up permanently. One flash had finished another would come and over and over again. You could feel the buffeting coming over the berms that surrounded our unit. There was one significant failure by the coalition air forces. The initial euphoric mood described by General Peter de la Billière was in part because the suggestion in the Riyadh war room was the air attacks had negated the threat of the Iraqis' mobile, short-range ballistic missiles, known as SCUDs. The SCUDs the
4: this turned out not, not
2: to be the case. The Far from With it. From Coalition intelligence smoke. underestimated the number of Iraqi SCUDs, and within 24 hours of the first bombs falling on Baghdad, the first SCUDs were heading towards Saudi Arabia and, most alarmingly for the future of the coalition, Israel. As the sirens blared out across Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, and Haifa, US and UK diplomats and commanders all the way up to the president and the prime minister hurried to talk the Israelis down from responding in kind. If Israel entered the war, well, nobody was sure where that might lead. For a start, it would almost certainly break up the coalition. Arab nations would be highly unlikely to remain a part of it once Israel became involved. George Bush rang Yitzhak Shamir daily, urging him to keep his cool. John Major, too, spoke with the Israeli PM. I spoke to the Israelis several times during the
4: conflict, as I believe did George Bush. They understood the situation would escalate if they intervened. It was not easy for them. They are a warrior nation with a warlike temperament. I admired
2: their restraint on this occasion. Across the war, the Iraqis launched 91 Scuds, three at Bahrain, the rest split between Israel and Saudi Arabia. In military terms, they had minimal impact against Israel. Only six landed in densely populated areas, and two people were killed but Saddam knew what he was doing. It was not a military target. He was targeting Israel as a whole. He was certain the Israelis would respond with force. The Israeli government ordered the Israeli Defense Force to prepare a unit of commandos, supported by helicopters and the air force, to go into Iraq and seek out the scud launchers. Bush and Major implored Shamir to sit on his hands. They would sort it. Reluctantly, The Israelis agreed, but with one asterisk. If a single scud carried a single drop of any chemical weapon, Israel would respond with full force. There were some in UK high command who saw that as a veiled threat to drop a nuclear bomb on Baghdad. Within days, the coalition had switched 40% of its air power to hunt the mobile Scud launch sites. The US hurriedly deployed Patriot missiles as a shield against the Scuds, and were soon claiming to be intercepting every single one fired at Israel. The truth was the absolute opposite. They didn't stop a single one, according to the Israelis, although the full picture of the Patriots' failures did not emerge until after the war. It was in fact the US that suffered the greatest loss of life to Scud attacks. On the 25th of February, a missile crashed into a barracks in Saudi Arabia, killing 28 Americans and wounding nearly 100 more. Help, help, help! The Scud launchers were proving difficult to locate in the vast sweep of Iraq's western desert. They were small enough to be hidden under road bridges so British planes took to flying as low as possible so the pilots could peer beneath bridges. Special forces were also deployed in the Scud hunt, largely on the recommendation of General Delabilliere, himself once of the SAS. Delabilliere claimed the SAS was to have the most success. Their missions, forcing the Scud units to move deeper into Iraq, so significantly reducing their threat. It was on one of these missions that the Bravo 2 patrol departed. Only one of the eight men was to make it back. Three died and the rest were taken prisoner. Controversy has surrounded the fate of the patrol ever since. The accounts of the survivors, at least the ones who have spoken in public, all differ. The patrol commander, Sergeant Stephen Mitchell, wrote the best-selling book, Bravo 2-0, under the pseudonym Andy McNabb. In an interview after the war, Mitchell described the moment the patrol were discovered by the Iraqis. Basically, we were in
1: the shit. There's nowhere to go but forward. What we try to create is a thing called fire and maneuver. So there's always fire going down, but we're always going forward. It's a very chaotic time. You're trying to take aim, you're out of breath. You're trying to get in fire position, your weapon will move up and down. You're trying to aim shots because you want to conserve your ammunition. We got to about 15, 20 meters, still firing and moving. There's all this adrenaline, you're shouting at the people, telling them we're gonna go forward. There's people who are dead, people who are wounded. People cry, people scream, people beg, because they think you are going to kill them. But you're going to go up to them and execute them.
2: People beg. Four other books have also been written about it, including by Corporal Colin Armstrong, writing as Chris Ryan, the sole member to make it back after an epic eight-night solo hike across the desert. Armstrong's escape was described by Delabilliere as one of the most remarkable feats of physical endurance ever recorded. As the SAS scoured the Western Desert for scuds, back across the Saudi border, the build-up for the land war gathered pace. In contrast to obvious superiority in the air and at sea, the land forces appeared more evenly matched. Iraq had had ample time and opportunity to prepare defensive lines in Kuwait, and await the invasion from a position of strength. There was real fear among the coalition leadership of significant casualties, and of course, that ever-present specter of Vietnam. But throughout the 1980s, NATO forces had trained on avoiding Vietnam-type scenarios, developing coordinated operations with air support, campaigns of movement and fluidity tactics well suited to the spaces offered by the desert. And Norman Schwarzkopf had come up with a plan specifically to meet the conditions and the troops and armour at his disposal. Substantially, it was Norman
4: Schwarzkopf's strategic plan, his overall plan for the theatre that led to success.
2: Sir, yes, sir. The 56-year-old Schwarzkopf, Stormin Norman as he was to become known, was central to the First Gulf War. He was a big man, standing six foot three and weighing in at over 90 kilograms for a big job. Uh, there's no such thing as a clean war. And, uh, and I would certainly agree with the statement that it's not gonna be a clean war. He was also equipped with a hair-trigger temper to match his size. Schwartzkopf's military career began in the 101st Airborne and included two tours of duty in Vietnam. He came home with three silver stars. Yet such were his experiences in Vietnam he considered leaving the army. Instead, he stayed and rose through the ranks. He was deputy commander of the controversial US invasion of Grenada, where it was believed the US underestimated the likely degree of opposition, something Schwarzkopf well remembered. In 1988, he was appointed to central command at its Tampa HQ. So when Kuwait was invaded, it fell to him to lead the coalition response.
4: His contribution was unique and immense. I mean, he ran the whole operation, and it stood or fell on his management of it. His weakness, I think, was his temper. Whatever way he cares to explain it, it did subdue his staff. He didn't get the best out of them as a result of it, and I think that really was his major shortcoming. But it was more than made up for by three things. First of all, he was an exceptionally fine soldier, he knew his job inside out, and therefore all the military people working with him had no trouble in accepting his decisions. Secondly, he understood the Arab world. He'd been brought up there in his young days when his father was in Iran, and he knew that you don't do things in Arabia the American way, if you want to get them done. And he was able to adjust his pace of doing things, and the way in which he did things, to meet the Arab style, which was very important. You must remember, we were guests out there. And thirdly, was his diplomacy. He was a great diplomat when dealing with other nations. And because of this diplomacy, he was able to keep the coalition
2: together. General Cal Waller was appointed Schwarzkopf's deputy and arrived in Riyadh to discover a tense HQ.
0: I will tell you that the staff officers appeared to be timid a little bit like walking around on eggshells. They were very reluctant to give bad news to General Schwarzkopf for fear that they would cause some minor eruption. Now, it just so happened that this was my fourth time working with General Schwarzkopf, and we were friends. I certainly understood what was required in working with Norman Schwarzkopf. You see, Norman Schwarzkopf is an enormously bright individual, a smart person who is prone to some fits of temper, I knew the warning signs it was sort of like watching a thermometer the blood would start around the shirt collar and then it would work its way up to the jawline and then to the ears and by the time it got to the ears you ought to watch out because there's gonna be a minor eruption and whoever was in the way might get lambasted. Uh,
2: So I don't think war is inevitable. Uh, And I, I think it'd be a pretty hopeless world if we ever came to that conclusion. Schwarzkopf's immediate challenge was to come up with a plan. The first, presented to the White House at an October 11th briefing, was rejected. It was labeled unacceptable by Dick Cheney, dismissed as a hey diddle diddle straight up the middle plan. There was a suspicion the military were trying to make a point. General Powell, head of the US military, claimed it was the best plan they could come up with, given the resources they had. In other words, give us more, men, tanks, equipment, and we'll give you a more ambitious plan. In November, President Bush signed off the 7th Heavy Armament Corps to be dispatched from Germany to the Gulf. And by the time the ground war began, the US had three corps in Saudi Arabia. With a Marine Corps and an Airborne Corps, as well as what amounted to another corps of coalition forces, including a British and French armoured division. As US troops set off for the Gulf, they were handed a plastic bag as they boarded their flights. It contained a Bible, water, sun cream, and a miniature US flag. In all, 32 countries contributed to a coalition force that totaled around 800,000 men and women. (laughs) Schwarzkopf and his planners settled on what was known as a Hail Mary assault. Two corps would attack into Iraq to the west, then swing round into Kuwait, cutting off the Iraqi forces. It was seen as both a bolder approach and one likely to lead to fewer casualties. Yet unit commanders still feared significant numbers. Gary Luck, commander of the 18th Corps that would make up the far west of the attacking force, suggested a 10 to 20% casualty rate. General McCaffrey of the 24th Infantry Division thought of his 25,000 men, between 500 and 2,000 would be killed or wounded. Schwarzkopf drew the western edge of the attack, a line that land from Rafah in north-central Saudi Arabia up to Samawa, deep in Iraq itself. The marines with Arab allies would attack up the coastline both attacks to take place once the air campaign had done its devastating work. Yet the first land engagement was actually instigated not by Schwarzkopf, but by Saddam. On the 29th of January, he ordered an attack on the Saudi city of al-Khavji, just over the border from Kuwait. Why Saddam ordered the offensive remains a mystery seemed nothing to gain by attacking a city of no military significance. It did take the coalition forces by surprise, and the U.S. Marines and Saudi forces deployed around the city were forced to retreat. Move, move, move! Air power soon had the decisive say. The three Iraqi columns were attacked relentlessly by U.S. gunships, armed with electronically powered Gatling guns. as Cobra helicopters and B-52 bombers. Close to 1,000 air sorties were made against the Iraqi columns. Saudi-led coalition forces swiftly retook the city on the 31st of January, and the Iraqi units limped back over the Q80 border, having lost some three quarters of their strength for no discernible purpose. Meanwhile, the shift west continued. 250,000 men and kit were being moved up to 300 miles west into the Saudi desert. To cover the plan, a deception operation attempted to convince the Iraqis the attack would come straight into Kuwait. Behind the front line, a 100-strong unit labeled the deception cell blew up inflatable tanks and ensured there was endless radio chatter befitting a corps preparing for war. On Valentine's Day, Schwarzkopf started the countdown. G for ground assault, minus seven. Two days later, Seventh Corps headed west into position northeast of Rafar al-Batin, ready for G day. So large was the force, it took more than an hour to fly over it in the helicopter. Seventh Corps left their deception men behind as well. Their equipment included a device that faked anti-aircraft missile signals. Among the troops heading west was the British 1st Armoured Division, commanded by Rupert Smith. Smith had already fought and won one significant battle before the ground war began. Just getting a full strength, fully equipped tank division in the field had proved something of a Herculean task. Smith soon realized the training his men had been involved in for year after year in northern Germany training for a Soviet invasion, was utterly unsuited to fighting anywhere else. The constant need to count the cash, every penny had to be accounted for to the Ministry of Defense in London, meant their equipment was similarly only meant to fit into a German landscape, which has nothing in common with the deserts of the Gulf. It was estimated only 22% of Britain's entire force of Challenger tanks were in full working order. There were serious doubts among tank officers and logistics staff whether the Challenger, this crap tank as one senior logistics man described it, was up to the task, even if enough in working order could be got to the desert in the first place. It turned out that from four armored divisions stationed in Germany, Britain could cobble together one action-ready, fully equipped and manned division. Unit commanders had to beg and borrow from those remaining in Germany. Medical units complained they were given equipment made in the 1970s. One British CO rung back to Germany just in time to catch the next deployment before they left and told them to bring parkers. The desert nights were cold. The lack of desert warfare experience alarmed many commanders. The Staffordshire Regiment got an infantry veteran of the Second World War to lecture them on leading assaults in the desert.
4: I think everybody was really surprised. A lot of people had been saying that we were under-resourced in Germany and that equipment wasn't properly maintained. But I don't think anybody really thought it was going to boil down to the fact that all we could really put in the field with effective armour, that it would come down to one division. They had to cannibalise all the armour from other divisions, a lot of the personnel from other divisions, a lot of the military equipment, gunners and so on
2: from other divisions. Staff from Vickers, the maker of the Challenger, traveled out to the Gulf on the transport ships, upgrading the tanks as they went. Extra armor was fitted once they arrived in the desert, in pouring rain and swirling sand, but the Challengers still had a significant advantage over Soviet-made Iraqi tanks. British tanks could fire accurately to a range of three kilometers. The Iraqis, less than half that, 1,200 meters. That was to prove crucial. 22nd of February, fearing and knowing what was coming, the Iraqi forces in Kuwait put the Tariq project into operation. They set fire to over 140 oil wells. Clouds of black smoke darkened the sky. To the west, thousands of young men prepared to go into combat for the first time. Brian Richards was 17, the youngest soldier in the 1st Armored Division, the youngest British soldier in the Gulf.
5: I remember going off and sitting on a sand dune and having a quiet moment for myself. This really was going to be it. I found it quite overwhelming that at 17 I'd written a last will and testament. You've got to put it aside. We did that. The humour on the tank was fantastic.
2: Back at home, on the bases in Germany. Germany. The wives and families were told to expect a casualty rate of 33%. One in three men would either not be coming home or returning with wounds that could be life-changing. Brigadier Patrick Cordingley was 43, commander of the 7th Armoured Brigade, about to lead 10,000 troops in battle.
5: Always at the back of one's mind as a commander, you think, how many men am I going to take home with me? Am I going to take the majority with me? How many letters will I be writing to parents? to wives, saying terribly sorry.
2: Arthur Denaro commanded the Queen's Royal Irish Hussars. A huge gulp, really. Forty years since any British tanks had been in combat. We
1: were going off to war. I had a huge personal crisis of confidence. Was I good enough to take a regiment to war?
2: Shrimp was served for the final dinner. US Army rations, a gift from the neighbors. And as the sun set, a piper played. The notes drifted across the desert. It froze the hair on your head, said Kate Adie, the BBC reporter. The moment of departure had arrived. Next, on wars that shaped the world.
4: There was no equality in this conflict. There was a very high level of difference, and it has never happened in history before. Not even to a major superpower, where the whole world joins in against it. Except for Germany in the Second World War. And even Germany was not alone.
2: Wars that shaped the world was a Goalhanger Podcasts production. It was produced by Holy Smokes. This series was written by Robin Scott Elliot. It was narrated by Paul Waggett. The producer was Neil Fern. The executive producer was Tony Pasta.